So has anybody ever looked up the word hope in the dictionary? Much like other words, over time, the definition has changed. And if you read the definition today, it says something like this, the feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best. And the key words on there is it's the feeling and the other one is that that can be had. But for the believer, hope is completely different. For the believer, hope shouldn't be defined this way. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who fall asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that, that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And here we see this, the, the big difference because hope for a believer changes our complete outlook on life. It changes our viewpoint. Now, my father passed away in his mid-50s. It must have been 10 or 15 years ago. He died of pancreatic cancer. And at the time, I was already a strong believer. And even though the pain was incredibly intense, I know as soon as we found out that he had cancer, I made sure that he was saved, that he was born again. And when I looked at what was happening, even though he was dying, even though that he, wasn't, he ended up passing away, and even though the, the pain was incredibly intense, I mean, it doesn't mean that we don't grieve. It means we grieve differently. <laughs> but I had a hope because I knew that I would get to see him someday. But there were a lot of other of my family members who didn't have that same hope. They didn't believe the same thing. And it was interesting to me to see how much differently the grieving process was handled. Because they had no hope. They thought it was the end. So there's a difference between a believer's hope and the world's hope. It changes our outlook because hope for the believer is more than just a wish or a dream. It's firm. It's the catalyst for our faith. And the promises of God, they inspire hope inside of us, which leads to our faith, our trust in Him. But how can hope, especially as the world defines it, something that could happen, something we have a feeling for, how can that turn into faith? Because as a believer, hope is a done deal. It's a sure thing. And as such, we can put our faith in it. That's the difference between a believer's hope and the world's hope. For the believer, it's a done deal. Now, if you take that same dictionary and you look up the word hope, if you keep reading down all the definitions, I was looking and one of them said archaic. That was the tag to put on. Basically, this is what people used to think the word meant. It was antiquated. But what it says is to place trust or to rely usually followed by in. That sounds like Christian hope to me. To place trust in and rely on Jesus Christ. Because he's the source of our hope. If I had to rewrite the first definition, I think I would change a few words if we were talking about Christians. It says it's the feeling that what is wanted. I think it should say it's the knowing that what is wanted. And instead of saying, can be had, it will be had. So the, the knowing that what is wanted will be had because of our trust in Jesus Christ. There's a difference in the two words. We say the same word, but we have completely different meanings. Amen. Proverbs 10.28 says, The hope of the righteous brings joy, 
but the expectation of the wicked will perish. So one of the interesting things to me is we see that the hope of the righteous brings joy. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you guys a little, bit of te- a little test right here. Raise your hand if you're righteous. All right, I see some of you guys didn't raise your hand. Put your hands down. Raise your hands if you're a born again believer. You put your trust in Jesus Christ. All right, now keep your hands up. If you, if you have them up now, keep your hands up. Raise your hands if you're righteous. There we go. You guys got it all right this time. The thing is, when you're born again, you are righteous. We're going we're gonna to step back from hope for a second. Let's just get to some basics. If you were born again at that moment, you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you were made righteous. You were made pure. You were made holy. How do I know that? Well, how many of you know that the scripture says that, that, that the Spirit of the Lord comes to live inside of you? It also says that, that the light can have no fellowship with the dark. That in God there is no, no unrighteous. It, how could God live in you if you weren't righteous? Now, I get it. Sometimes it takes our life to catch up to the reality of what's actually <laughs> happened inside of us. But the moment you were born again, you were righteous. You have hope for the future. And the hope of the righteous brings joy. You see, there's a difference between joy and happiness too. Did you guys know that? Happiness is based entirely on circumstances. When we get a raise, that makes us happy. When we get to go on vacation, that makes us happy. We find out we might be having a baby, that makes us happy. Have you noticed something? It's all based on circumstances. Same with with unhappiness. You get fired. That's a pretty rough day. You're not very happy then. Maybe you get sick. That doesn't make you happy. Or maybe somebody else finds out you're having a baby. and That doesn't make them happy. The reality is, is that happiness is dependent entirely on our circumstances. But joy is independent of our circumstances. You can get fired and still have joy and still be unhappy. Joy is the result of what God has accomplished inside of us. The hope of the righteous brings joy. We have hope because of what he's done inside of us. Nehemiah 8.10 says this, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The reason Nehemiah said this was that because the book of the law of Moses was just read to the people, and many began weeping, and they were in grief because they recognized their sins. They had their eyes opened, and they saw how bad. The, the book of the law was just read to them, and, it, and, and they recognized how bad their sin. When they began to weep, they began to, to grieve for what they had done to the Lord, what, what had happened. But he says, don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, it's not dependent on what they did or their failures. Their joy was dependent on who God is and what he had done. Joy is from God. It's the result of the hope that we have in Him because of our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus' complete success on the cross is what gives us hope. We don't have to wonder what's going to happen. We don't have to wonder if we're going to be good enough when we stand before God because it has nothing to do with you. Our hope is secure. 
secure and foundational because what Jesus did was enough. You see, for the wicked, the hope of the righteousness brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Perish. Expectation of the wicked may be perish as well. I've been there. But the expectation of the wicked will perish. Hey, take that out of the recording. We don't want that on there. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> so the, the, the thing is, is you notice there's a different word there. For, for the righteous, it's hope. But for the wicked, it's simply expectation. That's the thing. There's a, there, there's a, it's, they're similar in their use in the sense that both are tied to expectation. Biblical hope is tied to an expectation. But it's a sure expectation. Worldly hope is an expectation, but it's a wishy-washy expectation. It's something that, that could happen. It might happen. But when we hope with expectation, it's because we know that what we're hoping for is going to come to fruition. Biblical hope is eternal. This hope will perish. It's just temporal. Earthly hope, or just plain old expectation... It's going to perish. It has no lasting influence. It has no lasting anything. It's going to end. Even if all that they're hoping for is expected, or all that they're hoping for is received, all that they're expecting is received. You think of some of the people that, that are rich and famous, and we look at their lives and say, wow, they have everything. But their lives are, they, they have everything. All that they've expected, they have. But the thing is, is it doesn't last. And it's not enough. There is no eternal reward tied up in those things. It's temporal at best. And then most of them find that once they receive it, it wasn't enough anyway. What does it get them? If we continue on looking at hope in in, uh, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12, it says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. You know, it's true that whenever we, we are desiring something, we're looking for something, the longer it takes, it's harder on us. But when we get it, we're revitalized. I think that's true on both sides of the coin, but it's specifically true in the spiritual realm. In the spiritual realm. Because here's the thing, all around us, we look and we see people walking... <laughs> without any hope. They have a sickness in their heart that many people don't even recognize. Larry Carter, the president of Great Lakes Christian College, he tells the following true story. He says, I remember when I was a kid some 40 years ago playing on a Little League baseball team. One of the things our coach did was host a picnic for the team at the beginning of the season. And after we ate hot dogs and burgers, he sat us down for a pep talk. And he asked, how many of you have a dream to one day play in the major leagues? And almost every hand shot up. Every kid with his hand up believed he could do it. You could see it in their eyes. And then he told us, if that is to happen, that dream begins now. He says, I was so inspired by that challenge, all of us were, that we practiced and played hard. And we went undefeated for the next few years. All-star teams from other leagues would play us and lose. Some 25 years later, I became a little league coach. And I brought all the kids together at the beginning of the season and gave them a pep talk. And the same, one, the same one that my coach had given me, and I asked my team the same question. How many of you have a dream to one day play in the major leagues? And not one hand was raised. 
Not one kid believed he could do it. You could see it in their, their eyes. I was speechless. He says, the rest of my talk was meaningless. So I said, really, nobody? Well, go get your gloves and let's throw. I thought about that day for a long time. What had happened in the 25 years since I was a kid? What had come into the lives to steal their dreams? What had convinced them that they would never be more than what they were? You know, I look around and like these kids, I see the people of our community, our workplaces, our friends, our families, and they don't see anything off in the distance. They've already given up. They're resigned to what is. They see no hope for the future. They see no way out. Every single one of us instilled inside of us, we understand that there are things that are wrong, that we, that we sin, that we don't measure up. You don't have to tell people that. But so many of them see no way out. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. They're walking around with no hope, completely defeated. But as Christians, we have hope. We have that light at the end of the tunnel. We have a vision of the future and the promises of God. And our inheritance is in him, not based on us. This is our tree of life. This is our revitalization. This is why when people look at you, they should see something different than when they look at the rest of the world. I remember I had a coworker once, and uh, uh, it was it was before the pandemic, it was, but it was as we were coming out of that last big uh, housing crash. And I don't know if you remember that. I mean, people were, were the, their, their money was, was drying up because the market crashed so hard. There were people committing suicide. They thought that they had lost everything because their money was gone. They saw no light at the end of the table. They had no hope. And they began to even commit suicide over these things. And this coworker and I were talking about this afterward. And, and even at that time, I really wasn't concerned about all that stuff. Because no matter how bad it got, I knew my God would take care of me. And he says, you know what, I had this lady that I worked with at the time when all that was going through, and she always had joy. She always had a positive outlook. Her retirement was disappearing because how many know that stuff doesn't just uh, impact certain people? That impacted everybody at that time. And he said, that was happening. Everything's falling around. Her retirement's gone, and she's still so joyful and so happy. And, I, and he said, I asked her why. Why, did she, why was she like this? And she said, because I know my God's going to take care of me. And, and it was so funny because on one hand, he thought she was crazy. He thought this lady was nuts because you know, he, he saw what was happening on the world around him. But on the other hand, he said, I wish that I could believe like that. I wish I could feel like that. You see, if you're a Christian with hope, and you generally understand the hope that you have. Your, your faith is sincere. People notice that around you. And it'll create opportunities for you to share with them. Because this hope we have, how many know that there's more than enough for everybody? It's not going to run out. It can't be depleted. And you can share it with others. The truth is, it's our responsibility and our charge to share it. Amen? Romans 8, 24 through 25 says, For in this we hope, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what, for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I want you guys to know that Christian hope is firm. It's solid 
For what we hope through in Christ, it is a, a, a reality. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of not th- things not seen. It's not the same as when we go something like, man, I hope it rains today. That's, that, that's earthly hope. That's a, that's a, a feeling and expectation. I mean, it could happen. It, could, it, it might not happen. But Christian hope is different because we, we, we hope with certainty. It's not like saying, I, I hope I win the lottery. Or it's not like saying, man, I hope because I've already had three girls and my next kid's going to be a boy. The thing about our, our faith, our hope that we have in the Lord, that even though we don't see it, it is just as much as a reality, even though it's not sitting right in front of our eyes. So what he says here. We hope for what we do not see, but we wait for it with patience. There, there's this understanding that it's coming. There's this understanding that, that it is going to firm up. It's going to be a reality. You might have to wait but it is on its way. And the truth is, is that even scientific research today is showing the power of hope. Hope, unlike optimism, is rooted in unalloyed reality. Hope is the elevating feeling we experience when we see in the mind's eye a path to a better, and this is a doctor writing this, a path to a better future. Hope acknowledges the significant obstacles and deep pitfalls along the path. True hope has no room for delusion. Hope gives us the courage to confront our circumstances and the capacity to surmount them. For all my patients, hope, true hope, has proved as important as any medication. There is an an authentic biology of hope. Researchers are learning that a change in mindset has the power to alter neurochemistry. Belief and expectation, the key elements of hope, can block pain by releasing the brain's endorphins and enkephalins, mimicking the effects of morphine. In some cases, hope can also have important effects on fundamental physiological processes like respiration, circulation, and motor function. During the course of an illness, then, hope can be imagined as a domino effect, a chain reaction in which each link makes improvement more likely. It changes us profoundly in spirit and in body. And this is written by Jerome Grupenin. And Jerome Grupenin, he's a, he's, he's a medical doctor, and he's the Dina and Raphael Reconati Professor of Medical Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's a Chief of Experimental Medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and he's one of the world's leading researchers in cancer and AIDS. Even prominent scientific minds are recognizing that, that, that the power of hope And hope for the Christian is the reality of what he has accomplished. It is the promises of God in our lives. Even if those things are not seen, that's where our faith comes in. We believe that they are because he says that they are. We sang that song this morning, Promises. And we sing it with that attitude of heart that that when God says something, he's going to do it. The scripture says that he's not a man that he should lie. He's not the son of man that he would change his line, change his mind. And he says, if I have said it, will I not do it? Our faith in God is well placed. If he says something, he's going to do it. So we place our, our faith in Jesus and it assures us of those things that we hope for. And the truth is, is that faith and hope are interrelated. You can't have one without the other. Our hope 
is a catalyst for our faith to make a reality of the things that we can't see. The scripture says it's the conviction or the firmly held uh, belief of things unseen. Our faith perceives and grabs hold of the reality that has not yet been related to our senses. And the thing is, is that so many people think, oh, you Christians with your blind faith. And they have this negative view of blind faith. The truth is, so do I. I think, I think blind faith is stupid. Blind faith is silly. But that's not what we have. We don't have fine blind faith. We have faith and the most faithful being that ever exists. We have, what we put our faith in is, is we have assurances of. The evidence is all around, both scientifically, philosophically, and just anecdotally in each and every one of our lives. We've seen God move and work. We don't have blind faith. We have faith in the one who is sure. Our hope is sure, amen? continue on Hebrews 6 17 to 20 says so <clears throat> when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie who we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us I just said that, that, that blind faith is silly. And you might ask, well, well how, how can you have so much assurance? <laughs> Man, my, my, my mouth is not working today. Assur assurance? Assurance. How can we have so much confidence in the promise of God? This is why a pastor has to be a walking thesaurus. So when we, it, it's not so we have different ways to say something. It's so when we can't pronounce a word, we can just pick another one. <laughs> Hebrews 6, 13 through 15 says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom he swore, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. You see, this promise was fulfilled to Abraham, even after his failures and his struggles. How many of you know that uh, 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 Abraham was struggling? He had, uh, God made a promise to him. And he believed it, but then it took a while, and he was like, well, maybe God needs a hand. So he made some bad decisions that are affecting us even to this day. But God was still faithful. Even after all of the struggles and failures on Abraham's part, God was still faithful. God didn't back down. God didn't change. Because the promise was secured by an oath by God on himself. And God also made a promise to us with the, the, the strength of that same oath to us. When God, God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So not only is it because God can't lie, we can believe what he says, but then he also swore on himself. He made an oath on top of that. So we have these two unchangeable things which assures us that when, when God says he's going to do something, he'll do it. It assures us that the promises he made that he will fulfill to us, that he's not going to back down, he's not going to change. He made this oath to us so that without a shadow of a doubt, we could know that our hope and faith were well placed in him. You say, well, wait a minute. He says he's talking to the heirs. How do you know he's talking to me? 
Galatians 3.29 says this, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is speaking to you, and you can have that faith, that trust. We are those who have fled for refuge in Christ, and our hope is with him as our high priest forever. Psalm 110.4 says, The Lord has sworn that he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, speaking to Christ's permanent priesthood. Hebrews 7.23-25 says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession intercession for them. Our salvation is guaranteed by God's promise and his oath. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be concerned. This, this isn't uh, something that we have to think, did I do enough? Was I good enough? Did I go to church enough? Did I pray enough? Did I help enough little old ladies across the street? When God weighs the scales, will it be enough? I want to tell you this right now. If it depended on you, it wouldn't. One of the things I think, and I've talked about this recently, but one of the things I think is that Christians do not understand the weight of their sin. The impact, the detriment of their sin. You could have one sin, one little white lie on that scale, and it would shove it to the bottom so fast it would blow your mind. There's not enough good you can do on the other to balance it. And that's why he sent his son to pay that balance for us, to pay that penalty for us, to to balance the scales in our favor. And he didn't do it by just wiping it away. He actually paid the price for us, what we owed. And because of that, salvation is guaranteed. And if this doesn't inspire hope in you, I don't know what will. Amen? And it means something to us as well. Second Corinthians three twelve through eighteen, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lays over their heart. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil, is, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. When we start this, as he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. The hope that we have, the glory of the gospel, it should inspire a boldness inside of us. We can proclaim boldly as it's eternal and it never fades. You know, one of the things that when Moses was ministering to the people, he had to to 
put a veil over his face. If you guys know the story, he would, he would speak to God as, as, as one might speak to a friend face to face. And when he walked out of the, of the tent, his, his, his face was just glowing. And ultimately it scared the people. So he put a veil covering his face. And because of that, the people of God, the Israelites, were never able to see fully because he had to veil his face. And Paul refers to this reasoning as twofold. One, because the, the, they, the Israelites couldn't handle the glory of God shining from Moses' face. And then also, it, it wasn't permanent. See, we can declare the, the boldness, with boldness, the glory of God, because what we have is permanent and never fades. Whereas the glory that Moses was showing would scare them, and then it would eventually fade. And even now, it says, we know that when the law of Moses is read, a veil remains over the hearts of those who hear it. And the only way to remove that veil is through Jesus Christ. And as soon as they do, and this goes for anybody, the Jews, the Gentiles, anybody, as soon as they put their faith in Christ, they have freedom. And then we can be bold because with unveiled faces, we are being transformed into the image and glory of God. This doesn't fade. This hope doesn't wither with time. And our glory in him remains steadfast. And we can with boldness and confidence share our hope with others. You know, there's these two things that I notice when we start talking about hope is that one, we have it. And two, we should boldly share it with others so that they can have it. Like I said earlier, it's not going to run out. We don't have to be concerned that there's not enough because there is plenty to go around. Romans 5, 1 through 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. You know, when we start looking about what happens to us because we've been justified by faith, we start talking about, we, we've all been talking about, uh, or have been talking about, you know, we have hope because of that, because of what Christ has accomplished. And Paul actually really breaks it down as to how that, that lays out. And he says, first thing happens when you're justified by faith is that you have peace with God. I know that's a good thing. And it's so amazing that we who were once enemies of God now have peace with him. And too many of us, I think, when we read this, we, we think that this idea is that we have some sort of like inner peace with God. Like well, the, the, some sort of turmoil has is, is gone away that we have with God. But that's actually not what it's talking about. It's not talking about inner peace. It's talking about our relationship to him. In other words, it's not like you're like, oh, I feel better now that I'm, I'm with God. What it means is that you're not at war with God anymore. He's not your enemy. It's that kind of peace that you have with God. Because before you accepted him as your savior, you were enemies with God. That's what the scripture says. But Jesus took the thing that was driving a wedge between us and God. And now we're at peace with him. No longer at odds with our creator. And after that, we have peace 
through God, through, through, with, through Lord Jesus Christ, and then through him we also have obtained access by faith. We have, are able to have a personal relationship to him through faith. We have an introduction to God because the veil was finally torn. It is by faith into grace that we stand. And grace, I know that grace is what separates Christianity from every other religion. And people will ask, why, why do you think your religion is the right one and not some other religion? Aren't, aren't every, isn't every religion a path to God? But the problem is, and you can look at every single other religion. Well, let, me just, let me just read this to you. It says, during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation, other religions had different versions of God appearing in human form. Resurrection, again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into, his, into the room and he said, what's all the rumpus about? And he heard him reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of these offer a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. You can look at every other religion in the world, and it's, about all, it's all about how you can make yourself right with God. Christianity is the only one that recognizes that that's impossible. So God came down to us to make us right with him. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because of that. And then as it continues on, uh, we exult in, in hope. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, we can have confidence in our future. Like we said, we, we talked about already, Christian hope is not like that of the hope of the world. We're not hoping it's, it's not like, I hope it rains, or I, I hope I win the lottery, I hope the Cardinals don't go zero in 16 this season. Christian hope is the confidence of the Lord to do what he said he would do. And it is confidence that we will share in his glory. And Paul goes on and says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. This is a tough one. How many people like to rejoice in their sufferings? There's another scripture that says that, that we give thanks in our we should give thanks in our sufferings as well, in our tribulations. And it's like sometimes you wonder like as a writer to write, like, do you hear what you're saying? Like, did you think that through before you wrote it on? Because that doesn't make any sense. But the problem is, is we get confused, right? And and in our heads we read it like this. Not only that, but we rejoice for our sufferings. Or the other scripture we read it say, we think it says that uh, uh, we give thanks for our tribulations. But it doesn't say that. It says you give thanks or you rejoice in them. I'm not happy for the things that happen to me that are bad. There are some stuff in my life that I'm not excited about. I wasn't happy through. Matter of fact, it was incredibly painful and difficult to go through them. But as I said earlier, there's a difference between joy and happiness. I could still maintain my joy. I could still 
rejoice in my sufferings because what I was rejoicing for was not for the sufferings, but for what Christ did for me. And no matter what I was going through, nothing could undo that. Nothing could, could, could cause that not to happen. Nothing could, could, could somehow... Uh, my thesaurus is broken now. I can't think of the word I'm looking for. Now uh, well, you guys know what I was trying to say. Nothing can compromise. That's not the word I was looking for, but maybe it'll work. Nothing can compromise what God did for me. You know, one of the things that I really want to do is be able to preach in Spanish. I'm learning Spanish. Some of you guys know I've been going through that. But that's what they say. Like, to be able to converse in another language is one thing. You have to know it, you know, this well to be able to have basic conversations. But if I want to preach in it, I got to learn it up here. And that's why, because you have to know all the extra silly words to explain stuff. Hallelujah. So why would we rejoice in our tribulations? And I think it's, there's two main reasons. One, because we recognize that God is enough. And two, because we know that we can grow in them. He says, look, we rejoice because we know that suffering produces endurance. That means that we grow in them. We, we don't stay the way we were. One of the... <laughs> It's funny how often I like to use this example because you guys remember Bruce Almighty, the show? Such a silly representation of God. But it still has one of the most profound things in it that I think we can all learn from. And you guys remember Morgan Freeman was playing God and he's talking to the one gal and he says, you know, if you, if you ask God for patience, do you think he just gives you patience or he gives you an opportunity to be patient? He says, if you ask for strength, do you think God just gives you strength? or it gives you an opportunity to be strong. See, all those things have to be exercised. The same thing here. If we want to grow, if everything was perfect all the time, you would never grow. You would just stay the same. So while we're not thanking, or we're not thankful for these things, we can still rejoice in them knowing that they're going to produce a result that makes us stronger. That we can grow, we can endure. It helps us to have perseverance through the difficult times. How many know that if you have to persevere and have hope through a small thing and you come out the other side, it's going to be easier to have hope and persevere through a difficult thing. So as we go through these difficult times, it, it produces endurance, perseverance, and we, we grow because our trust in God does not waver. Just like Abraham didn't waver, we're not going to waver. We're going to keep our trust, and no matter what comes our way, we'll have the ability to do so. And as we continue to do this, this endurance, this persevering, it becomes character. Instead of something that you have to focus on doing, it becomes who you are. Proven character is because it's not one temporary action, but it becomes a, a character trait of who you are. We trust in God. Because that's who we are, amen. And then it says that character produces hope. You see, hope is our confidence in God. And it becomes that character trait, our hope, our trust in him. As God is faithful, our confidence increases all the more. And then that hope never puts us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into the hearts, into our hearts of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
You see, our, our hope, our trust in him never leads to disappointment. It never leads to, f- to failure because he is always faithful. And God has poured out his love into us unconditionally and con- continually. Before we were saved, it's, it's when he sent his son, demonstrated his, his unrelenting love for us. And then after we put our trust in him, he sends the Holy Spirit who testifies with our own spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness, which is another word for testify, with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You know, one of the things that, that's a reality is, is that when you get born again, like I said earlier, I asked everybody who was righteous. And not everybody raised their hand, even though everybody here raised their hand that they were born again. And see, the problem is that sometimes our, our conscience convicts us. Sometimes our heart disagrees with us. Sometimes the world disagrees with us. But the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that, yes, we are children of a God, that, yes, we are righteous, we are pure, we are holy because of what Christ did, not what we did. And this is what our hope is in. We can be confident that God will do what he said he would do. His love is inexhaustible and it's inextinguishable. It doesn't run out and it can't be put out. It'll never disappoint, amen? 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Have you ever wondered why the church is called Living Hope? That's why. Through in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I want you to wonder, are you starting to see a pattern as we've been talking about hope? Starting to see where our hope is, what we put it in, why we can have hope. It's in him and for what he has done. We have hope independent of our deeds or our actions. And as we saw in Proverbs 10.28, the first verse we looked at today, our hope brings us joy, which is also independent of our deeds and our actions, or what's happening around us. You see, to be born again is to be made brand new, changed from what you were. When we are born into a living hope, it's guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Babies have no past. Did you know that when they're born? They don't have sin, they don't have a past, they don't have any baggage. We're put into that same state as soon as you're born again. Just like the position of Adam, the only grown man that ever lived that had no past, no baggage, no anything when he was created. That's the state that we're restored to. All that stuff that you let rule your life and try to pull you down from your past, you think about how could God love me? How could, how could you know, after I'd done this, why would God want anything to do with me? That stuff that nags, some of us don't let that come to the forefront of our mind, but sometimes it nags in the back of our mind, those kind of things. When we're born again to a living hope, we're made brand new. And our hope is in God himself, and it's secured by the resurrection of Jesus. Because he sat at the right hand of God, and he said, it is finished. 
How many know when Jesus says something, it's finished, it's finished, amen? And then by returning, he proved that God was satisfied. He says that you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. The word inheritance is the same one used when speaking of the promised land for Israel. Except for our inheritance can never perish, it can never be destroyed. As long as you remain in the faith, it is a sure thing. It is guaranteed. We are protected by the power of God as long as we continue in the faith, knowing that nothing can separate us from God. And then we'll end here today in Romans 15, 13. May God, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This peace is that inner peace that we can only have with trust in God. I guess it's, you could be said because we no longer, because we actually have peace as in we're not at war with God then we can experience that inner peace that we're talking about. It is a gift from him. But Paul says, may the God of hope. You know, if you look at all the pagan religions that were around at the time, and that is from the Assyrians to the Greeks to the Romans, they had all kinds of God. They had gods of war, gods of industry, gods of agriculture, gods of cities, gods of towns various other types of God. But there never was a God of hope. Hope had long been abandoned by these people. And this is true of our culture as well. You don't have to look far to see the people living around us to see, even though they may not admit it themselves, but they're living as those without hope, without any real uh, insight to the future. been long abandoned by so many people and what we have is so incredible in Christ and there's a tangible need for Christ in our city in our state in our country in this world it is in our believing that we find joy and peace and we believe because of the hope that we have. So as a result, we all abound in hope according to the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, look, I want you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to abound in hope. It's because of our faith in Jesus that we can do these things. And this is my prayer for all of you, that you would abound in hope. And I want to challenge you as well. Church, let's be a people who abound in hope and share our hope with others. Amen.